This is Nona Jones, and welcome to a new episode of the Nona Jones podcast. Listen, before we jump into the conversation today, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please take a moment to do so. And of course, I would love it if you would tell your friends and your family about it and rate it as well. Looks can be so deceiving. When I first saw a headshot of my guest, I immediately thought, oh my goodness, she's gorgeous. Of course she would win Miss California. I read more about her and realized she was also smart. She was successful. She was assertive. She basically accomplished everything she ever set out to do. And I was impressed. And then I began to read the backstory. It's so true that we oftentimes look at the successful chapter a person's life is on and we just assume that's been their entire life. But my guest today, Christina Meredith, she is a testament to resilience. She is a testament to God giving us a crown of beauty for ashes. Her early life, her childhood was defined by ashes. And yet somehow, some way, this incredible woman through faith in God has managed to build a life that inspires and compels us all to realize we are never beyond repair. Today I have with me Christina Meredith, whose story is simply incredible. Um, an author, a child advocate, uh, and former Miss California. You know, you walk into those titles and you just would assume, well, of course, she's had a semi-charmed life. Uh, and yet, um, if people didn't know you, uh, Christina, they would think that, you know, you never had any problems, never had any challenges. Uh, but that's so far from the truth. I would love it if you could just Take us back to your earliest moments um, as a child and kind of walk us through what it was like um, growing up. So I grew up with eight brothers and sisters, and my father was a uh, Catholic Italian, which comes with its own set of rules for sure. And he worked three, four jobs to take care of all of his kids. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and it just so happens that she had a lot of issues. And so... With my dad always gone and my mother to tend to us, we were on our own and she was very abusive. She would take the money that he'd sent and she would spend it on herself and not pay the bills. And so my dad would come home after being weeks away with the army and the electricity would be shut off and there'd be no food in the fridge and us kids would be scattered to the wind. And usually he, he always told me he would find me in the crib with like days old diapers on. <laughs> so. My mother was just, um, you know, she was just mentally unwell. And so we grew up very, very poor and very rough. And then when my father went to jail, things got exponentially worse with my mom and her second husband. He was just as abusive as my mother. And so the abuse just escalated and then sexual abuse came in the picture and her brother started molesting us and raping me when I was nine. And I mean, it just got worse and worse and worse. So, you know. When you, when you look at poverty and you look at abuse, it's a systemic issue and then it's a generational issue. And so I look back and I think about my mother's childhood and how she grew up in poverty and abuse and how it just, if you don't break the cycle, if you don't really work on your junk and really 
do the work to break it, you'll just get trapped. You're trapped forever and ever and ever. And so growing up, it was hard. It was rough. It was lonely. It was painful. It was all the things that you would imagine from, you know, a kid put in foster care. <laughs> I, I would love it if you could share more about that because, you know, I think a lot of people assume, number one, they assume that children in foster care are either bad or delinquent uh, when in fact they are simply victims of circumstance. So I would love it if you could share um, like your path into the foster care system because you you had parents, um, but you ended up in the foster care system. Uh, I'd say 85% of children in the welfare system, the foster care system are put in there because of neglect and abuse by their parents and or grandparents and or an aunt or an uncle, but mostly by their parents. And so being in foster care has nothing to do with being a juvenile delinquent, although that's a path that comes from being in foster care because of neglect and abuse and unhealed wounds that cause kids to behave in ways that they normally wouldn't if they had one, a whole healthy family and or trauma therapy to heal from those trauma, traumatic abuse experiences. But um, yeah, I mean, I grew up just abused and abuse and social workers and DCF and uh, police started coming around my house when I was nine. And for years and years and years, they would come and they would do welfare checks because there were so many abuse reports about us kids. But nothing was ever done, unfortunately, because my mother married and married a man who was the lawyer for the sheriff's department in our small town. And so, you know how that goes. Corruption is a real thing. And so after years of abuse reports, finally, there was so much evidence and so there they couldn't hide it anymore. So at 16, I mean, abuse reports started at nine, went all the way through some horrible things because no one ever did anything for me and my siblings. And then at 16, the state finally took me away and put me into foster care. And just like you said, not because I was a bad girl, I was a good kid. I was a good girl. I mean, I, I was awkward and I was quiet and I was, um, didn't learn how to read till I was in high school, but you know, that's because my mother took me out of school. I, I never, I never finished seventh grade. I never went to eighth grade because of all the abuse, I, I had struggles with learning. I mean, disabilities are real, especially when you've been abused for a long time in the manner that I was. And so when I was finally put in care, it saved my life, but it also caused more pain, more trauma because I was separated from my siblings. And so that's a whole other thing. Most, you, it's very rare that kids get put into the same home as siblings. So, you know, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother a portion of the pain. But uh, yeah, so that, so most kids in care are just neglected and abused, and that's why they end up in the system. So I, I read a statistic um, that said more than 20,000 um, children every year age out of the, the foster care system. And yeah. about 20% of those kids basically just end up immediately homeless. Yeah. Um, and I know that you had a similar experience. I, I'd love it if you could just bring people into that and how that even happened and just what that was like because you know unless you've walked uh in those shoes you just have no idea so just just give everyone a sense of what that was like yeah so you're right Twenty thousand children age out each year we call them transitioning aged youth and they age out and they become and half of them become homeless 2500 children each month become homeless in america from aging out of the system so i was one of those kids you know, I, I was, I turned 18 this first semester of my senior year and I left my foster home that I was in the day I turned 18 
and I started couch surfing and I couch surfed the rest of my first semester and then all of my second semester. And then the day I graduated, I, high, day, day I graduated high school, which was a miracle in itself because um, I was taking taxis to school and it was so hard keeping up with, you know, school and working two jobs and it was just hard. So I bought a car and then I moved into my car because I was tired of couch surfing and it just gets, you know, you just feel like a burden. You just feel it's so uncomfortable. And then, you know, the experience of being homeless and living out of my car for a year, over a year, chiseled out of me the greediness that I am today. <laughs> well, something something that you've said um, in interviews before is you've said, and I want to make sure I get the quote, quote right, you said, um, I'm never going to be like my mother. And um, I, it's amazing how much we have in common because that's something that I, I've said throughout my entire life. Um, similarly, uh, my mother also, mental illness, um, sexual abuse that was known and allowed. And um, I think I, because I experienced that, I determined that I was not going to be like her. But I think even in determining not to be like her, there are things that I learned from her not to be. So I would love to hear, um, when you look back over that period of your life, what did your mother teach you not to be? Oh, she taught me to be so many things. <laughs> she taught me not to be impatient or unkind. She taught me that words really matter. You have to speak life over people. You have to choose your words like you're choosing life and death. Because what you speak over someone becomes reality that manifests in its own self. And so the biggest thing she ever taught me was that my words matter and that you can choose to build somebody up and encourage them into who God's called them to be, or you can break them down and, and they will they will become what you've told them they are. You know, and so I think she's taught me a lot of things. She taught me that I wanted to be the mom who makes heart sandwiches and goes to PTA meetings. I want to be the mom who, you know, makes my family get dressed for church on Sunday and Sunday's best. <laughs> I want to be the mom who is ridiculous about little things like making good grades in school and celebrating when dad comes home and making sure he gets all the love when he walks through the door. There's so many things that my mother taught me that I wanted to be because she was none of them. And I think a lot of it has to do with family, um, the way I want to have my family and, and all the love and all the care and all of the sacrifice that goes into having that. And I know it's not rainbows and picnics, relationships are hard, families are hard, but you can still have a sense of peace and joy and love even amongst chaos and crisis, which is part of life. And I think uh, I've really determined to have that and create a life for myself that allows that man and my children to come in so they can experience that beautiful gift with me. The book, um, Cinder Girl is just, it's so powerful. And I think one thing that became painfully obvious to me is, you know, when people are experiencing trauma, it is true that sometimes this, the signs are hidden, you know, it's, it's not visible, but in your case, it's very visible and yet, uh, it was not addressed. Um, why, like what, what, what went wrong in the, in the system and in the process that allowed that to happen to you and your siblings? I really think a lot of it has to do with, you know, 
it goes this it's kind of like this you see a child being beat in a grocery store will you shake your head and think something sure but will you approach that parent probably not probably not because people don't want to get involved in what what costs some something especially when they get nothing out of it and it wasn't until years later after there was so much abuse and there was so there's so much evidence no one could fight it anymore you couldn't fight the fact that i was coming to school with bloody noses and black eyes like i'd had been for years but this time i wasn't 9 i was 16 and this time i told a teacher who actually cared about me and so i just think you know a lot of people can turn their eyes a blind eye because it's easier it's easier to than to get in the mess and to clean it up and unfortunately that's the world that we live in where it's easier to turn a blind eye than it is to to be a good Samaritan or a helping hand or sacrificially love someone like we're called to because it costs us something. And I'm all against that. I'm against death to self and death to self-pity. So I will wring my life out for the betterment of others because that's what God's called me to do. And that's how we're supposed to live. And that's where you find real joy. That's where you find real peace. You know, breaking your own self for those that God's put in your life and i think you know i'm very aware even the military in me because i've been in the army for a while now and i i i just got commissioned and i'm doing a national ceremony at the pentagon next week it's very exciting and it's like even the military in me i'm very attention to detail i'm very aware of my surroundings i know every exit i know every door i know all the patrons that are sitting the risk assessment in me is going all the time i can't help it and so i i think i learned that well before i i join the army. I learned that as a kid. Risk assessment was constantly going on and paying attention to details and when was the next blow going to come or you know how was I going to feed my siblings or I mean you know what I'm talking about you just you're constantly on edge and trying to figure out survival mode how to survive. And so I think uh it's easier for people to turn away than it is to help. And I think a lot of people who haven't endured hardship and abuse and and destitute poverty don't have that vigilance that hypervigilance of survival mode that causes you to pay attention to detail so much. That's so true. Um I I I was telling a friend uh, about a month or so ago that I remember um whenever I would come home from school it's like number one I didn't want to go home but I had to and my heart rate would just rise like as I walked up to the house cuz I wasn't quite sure what I was walking into yeah. and you're right like the moment you walk in like you're you're assessing it's like okay do I hear voices like okay are are there you know loose papers on the floor does that mean that a fight just happened like you're you're constantly taking in the details mm-hmm. as a child and mm-hmm. and that's you know that's not where your mental energy should be um but I know you you said something about how um discovering JROTC really changed your life and I would love you to talk about that because it's it's incredible to know who you are today from who you very much so could have become um based on the variables what what made you like get into JROTC how did that even happen my mother had dropped me and my two sisters off at a home cuz she was constantly just farming us out to different places and uh this one family we were in it was my freshman year. Now, mind you, I never went to eighth grade. I didn't finish seventh. I went to part of sixth. Um, and so she told me she was enrolling me in freshman year of high school, and I, I hadn't been in school in years. And I was just like, I didn't know what to do. 
So she goes, I'm going to enroll you in pre-ROTC boot camp. And I had no idea what that was. I thought I was in trouble at first. <laughs> and so I go first day in East High School, and I met Master Chief McFarland. He's holding his mug, his khaki uniform, and, you know, I have to sign a piece of paper. Miss Violet dropped me off, and he goes, go find the quarterback. And I'm just like, what? I have no idea. All I know is that I would need to get out of his space and go where I was supposed to go. And so I'm running around East High School looking for the quarter deck. And uh, I found it. And I just became obsessed with everything military because I was, I just found something I was good at. I could stand at attention longer than any other kid. I could do more push-ups, more sit-ups, run longer. There was no quit in me. And I wasn't, there was no, and it was Stone Cold. That was my nickname, Miss Stone Cold, Ice Queen. So it was like, it was like a perfect, it was like a match made in heaven. <laughs> I finally could channel all of the junk into something positive and I was good at it. And I got praised for the first time at doing great at athletics and being able to sit still at attention for hours. And, you know, all of the things that I learned that first week of, of pre-ROTC and then doing four years of ROTC in high school and knowing that I wanted to be a military, an officer in the military since I was 14 and it's finally happening, you know, you can't quit on your dreams. God, God will take you the craziest ways. And, um, you know, he's celebrating it in a big way. I mean, I'm going to be pinned on national television by the secretary of the army. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> no, that's, that's incredible. And I mean, congratulations. I think Something I've long believed is that uh, children will live up to or down to the expectations of the people that matter to them. And so it's really a blessing um, that you were able to connect with people who saw potential in you because that, that I think is the truly the line of demarcation between so many children's ability to create a successful life. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about this uh, I fact that you ultimately became Miss California and, um, you know, I've never been a pageant girl myself, but I got to be honest, the girls in pageants <laughs> seem to be pretty well taken care of. Like they seem to have a pretty good life and that wasn't your story. So how did you get onto the pageant pathway? Oh gosh, totally the Lord, because I'm definitely not a pageant girl. I was a tomboy my whole life, still am, never went to prom. I mean, I just, again, an anomaly. So I was in Whole Foods in Santa Monica wearing cowboy boots and a long purple sundress because I'm from Florida. I grew up in the South, just a good old country girl. And he approaches me and he's like, you should compete in the Miss California competition. And I just chuckled it off. And I was like, I just assumed he was hitting on me. Honestly, I just assumed this man was hitting on me. Thanks for the card, throw it in my bag, go about my business, I'm getting my kale salad now. And uh, I mean, it was for real. And so when I got home, I, I looked up the website on his card and I, I looked at the Miss California pageant and all the things that that meant and competition I was good at because I did four years of RTC and we competed at the state national level. I was captain of cross country, captain of track and field. I was captain of the rifle team. I was captain of the sailing team. I mean, you name it, I was competitive all four years. So I was like, oh, competition well let's go and so I put my hat in to be Miss Ventura and I won Miss Ventura and then I started hustling the city of Ventura which was so amazing to me all the businesses that I went knocked on doors I said I'm 
I'm competing to be Miss California and my platform is to reform foster care. Give me your money. And I raised tens of thousands of dollars doing that. And so I went to state and then I and I won. And, you know, it was really a beautiful moment because it was just, it brought a lot of healing for me. And it, it, the Lord taught me so much through that, that pageant experience, you know. I mean, do, do people... Do people have things to say about women who compete in pageants? Sure. But God can use any platform. He can use anything to chisel something out of you. He can use anything to bring healing. He can. He did so much for my self-esteem and so much in me as in my femininity. I was so I used to be so afraid of my femininity because it caused me to be raped for so many years. I hated it. I hated being pretty, beautiful, sexy, whatever. These are all normal things that, that we as women should embrace because that's how God created us. But... I rejected it, and then I competed in Miss California, and the Lord brought that healing back so I could embrace my femininity, and I didn't have to be so masculine all the time. I didn't have to hide my face or hide my hair. I could be a woman and, and really enjoy that gift, and so Miss California did so many things for me, and, and it obviously set my career on a trajectory where I am today, uh, and I take none of it for granted, but yeah, it was, just, it was just a beautiful gift of healing for me. Well, it, it's it's funny you would say healing because actually <clears throat> the next question I had was uh, you know you you launched the uh, Christina Meredith Foundation um, with the goal of advocating for foster care youth as well as uh, providing resources um, to them and I just wondered because your your journey has just been so incredible and so filled with trauma and pain like how did you come to a place where you were healed enough to help others heal? I've been in trauma therapy for decades. I have worked on my junk and I talk about this. So I'm a national speaker, I travel the country and I, I speak all over the country to people. Been on television, speak to millions. And I always tell them, deal with your junk. Did you have a, a bad mom and dad? Did you have a bad experience? Did you have something traumatic happen to you? Did you experience a loss or a grief? Awful. Feel your feelings. Don't trap them inside. My childhood is not an excuse for me to have a poor adult life. I cannot pin what my mother and father and uncle and this and that on, on what's going on in my world now as an adult. I have to take responsibility and ownership for me. I'm not a victim. And I knew that right out the gate when I graduated high school and moved into my car. When I was homeless, I told myself often, you are not a victim, Chris. God is setting you up to endure hard things so you can be a leader worthy of following. And so I think me taking ownership of my hurt and my pain and my shame and all the things that come with being abused and raped and neglected and abandoned and all that, I've, I've taken ownership of all of those things and I've, I have dedicated so many years and so much time working that out emotionally with trauma therapists that I am whole and complete. Do, are, are there things that trigger? Sure. But that's, that's everybody. That's life. That's humanity. That doesn't mean you can't have a life worthy of enjoying. You can't, you can't break free of the bondage that trapped you once. No, no, no. You can break free of all of those things. But you have to really focus on what has harmed you and what has hurt you. You can't allow past things to stunt your future or your current or your, your present. And so I think a lot of the grace that I have to be able to share my story and talk about it and, and, and cause people to start their own healing journeys is that I take ownership and responsibility and have for a long time. 
You know, I think that's really important is I deal with my junk. We have to deal with our junk so we can have whole, healthy relationships because that's the key. Having whole, healthy relationships breaks the cycle of poverty abuse. It breaks the cycle of of perpetuating constant chaos and confusion and, and, and heartache in somebody. That's that's the thing. And so if we can work on our own stuff, then we can we can put that out into the world and we can bring others to work on their own stuff and then we can have this this joy, this love, this peace, this this safety in relationships that we're called to have, this deep intimacy that's rooted in us that causes more healing to happen when we have that. How did the title of your book come to be, Cinder Girl? How did that come to be? I love that you asked that because I wrote that down. I started writing my book when I was homeless, and Cinder Girl was the title. Wow. And Harper Collins told me no for the first two years. They wanted to name it something else, and I begged, 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 begged. I was like, no, this is the name of my book. This is the name of my memoir. Finally, right before they went to print, before we we're going to publish last year when I went on my, my tour, they're like, you're right, we're going to name it Cinder Girl and we're going to put your face on the cover. And I wept because that's the title the Lord gave me when I was 19 and homeless, you know, and they were going to change it. And then they finally did the right thing. And here we are. It's about to be made into a movie. We're very excited. And just know that it's. God's been very good to me about giving me clear direction and clear wisdom and titles and writing. And it's really just him just being kind to me. <laughs> wow. You know, you're, you're a light of hope uh, to so many people and just an inspiration. Um, and as we get ready to close, I wonder if there is someone who has been a light for you um, during this dark time that you would just like to acknowledge um, because I think none of us are able to um, realize our full potential without the the ability of having someone in our life who can recognize it so, uh, so anyone you would like to recognize yeah uh, Betsy Kennedy she has been a mentor of mine for gosh since Miss California so for a hot minute and she has spoken so much life over me and she's been with me through all the ups, all the downs, all the rejection, all the success, all the hardship. Betsy's just been what I've never had. She's been family. So I just thank her for always believing in me and always standing by me, always constant in prayer. She's she's it. I don't I don't have anyone. My my circle, my nest is very small. But I always have Betsy and for that I'm so thankful. Well, we are thankful for you, Christina. Um, we're just thankful that uh, despite all of the, the pain, the abuse, um, just all of the, the moments that could have derailed the purpose for which God created you, I'm so grateful um, that you leaned into, into the identity that he wanted you to have, and that is as a victor. And so as we get ready to close, I would just love it if uh, you'd be willing to just briefly pray for people who may be watching, um, who are similarly experiencing what may feel like a hopeless situation. Um, I would love it if you would just pray over them uh, as we get ready to close. Sure. Uh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this time with Nona. She is, she's truly a blessing, Lord, and she's so sweet-spirited. And I just pray for everyone who's listening that you would just touch their heart and you would strengthen them, Lord, and you would give them wisdom, and you would give them dreams, just like you gave me dreams, Lord. You would give them dreams that empower them 
to the call that you have put on their life, that they would be empowered to walk out those dreams, Lord. They would write down a plan of action, and they would fight to get to where you've called them to be, which is a place of wholeness, a place of peace, a place of rest, Lord. I pray that you would bring whole, healthy relationships into everyone's life who is listening, Lord, that they would have a rock in their life that would support them emotionally and mentally. I pray, Father, that you would just cut away the weeds and cut away what is strangling or entangling us, Lord, um, that, that you would just bring the garden to, to 100% light in life, Lord. And I just I just lift up everyone who's listening, Lord, and I pray a special blessing of, of peace and of love and and healing, Lord, that you would heal all those who hear and that, and that they would know you, Father, that they, you would draw them closer to your son, Jesus, and that we'd be able to walk out in this life in unity as part of the body, just loving on people around us. And we thank you. And in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. 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 Christina, thank you. Um, I pray that God would continue to just enlarge your territory, continue to take your message uh, to the four corners of the earth. And again, congratulations on your commissioning. Um, now I can say I know somebody uh, super <laughs> high up. <laughs> Don't mess with me. I know Christina Merritt. Definitely start at the low totem pole, but one day. <laughs> You know, the more I listened to Christina's story and the more I read about her story, I realized we had so much in common. The thought that we could be easily discarded, and yet God never discarded us. The thought that we didn't really matter to the people that we should have mattered to. And yet we mattered to God. I want to encourage you through Christina's story that no matter what's happened to you, no matter what you've done, no matter how many people have abandoned you, no matter how many people said you would never accomplish anything or be worth anything, I want you to know that God sees you and he loves you. He knows everything about you and still chooses you. I want you to plan to Join me back here again next week for a new episode of the Nona Jones podcast. It's my mission to continue lifting the stories of people who inspire us all to know that there is a God in heaven who can redeem our stories. God bless you.